Well, for the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at a very important warning that the author of Hebrews gives to his initial recipients, and that warning is to not decline spiritually. And the author starts this warning by sharing three reasons why these Hebrew believers were declining th- uh, spiritually, three areas of their life uh, that were spiritually immature. And, and after revealing the problem of their spiritual immaturity, he goes on to share a solution to that problem. He shares a way that they can go from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity. And we looked at this last week. They first needed to move beyond the discussion of the basic foundational principles of Christianity to deeper spiritual things. Second, they needed to put their effort into moving forward into spiritual maturity. And third, they must not move to an inoffensive middle ground between Christianity and Judaism in order to avoid persecution. Now, remember that these Jewish believers, you know, their ultimate reason they were being persecuted was because they were following Jesus. They went out of Judaism. They accepted that Jesus is their Messiah. They started preaching Jesus and the cross and, and they were receiving persecution mainly from, you know, Jews who were still in Judaism who didn't like the fact that they were preaching Jesus, the Messiah. And they recognized, you know what? We wouldn't be persecuted anymore. If we would just go back to this inoffensive middle ground that there is between Judaism and Christianity, and the author lists kind of six things that are in that inoffensive middle ground, because, you know, these are the same things that, um, you know, these uh, uh, Jewish people would have been preaching, you know, repentance from dead works, faith uh, toward God, the doctrine of ceremonial washings, a laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, you know, these Jews are the main ones persecuting them, and they're not going to persecute them anymore if they basically just preach and follow the same things that they did. And so there's this temptation to retreat to a safe, inoffensive middle ground encompassed both by Judaism and Christianity. But we notice there's a, there's a big problem with that, and the big problem is that the cross lies outside of that inoffensive middle ground. And so if you get to a place where you say, you know, I don't want to offend these Jews because they might persecute me. And so I'm just going to to stick with the inoffensive middle ground. Well, guess what? I have to leave. I have to leave the cross. I have to leave salvation alone through Jesus Christ, that he's the Messiah. You know, I have to leave these key Christian doctrines. And so I might be keeping similar things that are in Christianity and Judaism, but I have to leave the things that are distinctly Christian and deny the work and person of Jesus. And really, that's what these Jewish Christians were being tempted towards. You know, I'm going to have to walk away from the thing that's persecuting me, which which ultimately my belief in Jesus and the cross, and go back to the things that I once held in Judaism in order to escape the persecution that's there. Well, now the author is going to continue this warning. Remember, it started in chapter 5, verse 11. It's going to continue to chapter 6, verse 18. We're not going to finish the whole warning this morning, but he's going to continue this warning, and now he's going to share, okay, what would happen to you if you decided to do what they were considering? You know, if you go to the safe, inoffensive middle ground between Judaism and Christianity, leave the offensive aspects of Jesus and the cross, what would happen to somebody who did that? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And I think it's important to note before we get into these verses that this 
portion of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning is a very controversial passage among biblical scholars and pastors and commentators. Actually, many biblical scholars believe that Hebrews chapter 6 Verses 4 through 6 is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to interpret. And whenever you have a difficult passage to interpret, you typically find that there are many different interpretations that people have to that difficult passage. And that's what we have here with Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. There are several different ways that different scholars and different commentators and different believers have interpreted this passage. Now, I think it's important that as we come to a controversial passage, as you approach something like we're going to approach this morning, uh, there's a great temptation to start by trying to shape the difficult passage that you're looking at into what we think it should say according to our theological system. And that is not a good start. That is not a good way to approach a difficult passage. We first need to be concerned with understanding what the text says in its context before we try to shape it and fit it into some system of theology that we might hold to. So it's important not to let the system of theology shape how we interpret the Bible, but we need to let the Bible shape our system of theology. Because if you start with your system of theology, like the system of theology that perhaps a Calvinist have or the system of theology that Arminianists have, what often happens is you end up reading into the text something it doesn't say, or you end up ignoring something that it clearly says. Why? Because it doesn't fit within the system of theology that you hold to. And you can end up interpreting the text not based on what it clearly says in its context, but what fits best with your system of theology. And that can limit what you feel the text can mean or feel that it can be saying to you. And you might not be open to anything that would go against your system of theology. Now, I specifically mention the system of theology that Calvinists hold to and Arminianists hold to for a reason, because as we come to this passage of Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, those are the two system theologies that are kind of most at odds with one another. Uh, both those groups, you know, view this passage in very different ways. They interpret this passage in very different ways. And one of the main reasons why they interpret this passage in very different ways is because they have two completely different systems of theologies. And so um, as we come to this passage, we're going to see that there are some very direct different views that we deal with. Now, Charles Spurgeon, I think, has some very wise words concerning our approach to difficult and controversial passages. He wrote this, we come to this passage ourselves with the intention to read it with the simplicity of a child and whatever we find therein to state it. And if it may not seem to agree with something we have hitherto held, we are prepared to cast away every doctrine of our own rather than one passage of Scripture. We had better be far, uh, better far be inconsistent with ourselves than with the inspired word. I have been called an Arminian Calvinist or a Calvinistic Arminian, and I am quite content so long as I can keep close to my Bible. You know, I think this is a wonderful approach to difficult and controversial passages, and it's one that I am seeking to do this morning as we approach this difficult passage of Hebrews 6, 
four through six, and we're going to approach the passage with simplicity, looking at the context. We're going to approach it with a heart that wants to be consistent with the inspired Word of God, and uh, even if that means being inconsistent with some man-made systems of theology. And I love what Spurgeon said, I've been called an Arminian Calvinist or a Calvinistic Arminian, and I'm quite content so long as I can keep close to my Bible. And that is my goal as we go through this, that we would keep close to our Bible, and my hope is that God would speak through us what he wants us to know this morning. And so let's look at the warning that the author gives to these Jewish believers of what would happen if they do choose to do what they've been tempted to do, to leave the controversy, the offense of the cross of Jesus Christ in order to go to the inoffensive middle ground that you have between Judaism and Christianity, which ultimately means leaving the most important part of Christianity, which is Jesus and the cross. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 says this, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. So the author starts off here stating something is impossible. Now, oftentimes we use this term impossible in our daily lives to not really mean impossible, but to mean really difficult, uh, to mean, you know, something that's improbable. You know, we do this a lot in sports. You know, if you're a basketball fan like I am, you might watch the Rockets play and you might see, you know, someone like James Harden make a really difficult shot, but you say, oh, what an impossible shot. But you can't really mean it's an impossible shot because he made it. And if it was impossible, then he would never have been able to make it. And so what we really mean is it's it's really difficult. It was improbable, and it was just so amazing that it actually went in. But that is not what the Greek word translated impossible mean. He is not saying, oh, there's something real difficult. There's something real improbable, but there's this slim chance that it could happen. That is not what this word means. This word speaks of something that cannot be done. Without possibility, it cannot possibly happen. Now, the author of Hebrews is using the same Greek word, impossible, that he uses a few other times in this letter. And I'll give you an example of one of the times he uses it, which kind of just helps you with the context of the fact that he's not saying real difficult or improbable. In Hebrews 6.18, we're told it is impossible for God to lie. So he's not saying, you know... It's unlikely that God would lie. It's real difficult for him to lie. It's improbable that he would lie. No, it is impossible. God cannot possibly lie. It goes against his nature and who he is. And so that's how he uses that word there. It's how he's using that word here. And I want to emphasize that because he's going to say something that's pretty hard to hear. And I want you to recognize he's not just talking about something difficult. He's talking about something that is completely impossible. Now, before we are told what the impossible thing is, we are told who this impossible thing is for. That there's a a group of people that this thing is going to be impossible towards. And he says this, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened 
and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So here the author is describing this group of people that he's about to say this impossible thing is for, and he shares five different descriptive things. And the purpose of these five different script, uh, descriptive things is really to help us to kind of know the kind of person that he is speaking about. And so let's look at these five descriptions, and I think it will help us to come to uh, a conclusion as to the kind of person the author is referring to here. And so the first description is of those who were once enlightened. The Greek word here translated enlightened means to bring to light, to shed light upon, to illuminate. Figuratively, it means to give guidance or understanding, to make clear, or to cause something to be known. Now, as you look throughout Scripture, this term enlightened, or it's often translated illuminated, it's something that is connected oftentimes with a believer in Jesus Christ who's been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, enlightened by the message of the gospel, and because of that, they have come to faith in Christ. Now, it's the same Greek word that this author of Hebrews uses another time in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, it's the same Greek word, it's just translated illuminated here instead of enlightened, you endured a great struggle with suffering, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you have had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven." And so here we see the author using the same Greek word translated enlightened, and he's definitely speaking of these Jewish believers that he's writing to, and that the fact that they are genuine believers going to heaven. Now, there are verses in the Bible, I think, to be consistent that you have to recognize, yes, you can see the same Greek word translated, whether it be enlightened or illuminated, that is not referring to people who have accepted the light, so to speak. They're not saved. John chapter 1, verses 9 and 11 gives us an insight into that. That was the true light which gives light, this is the same Greek word, to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And so this verse is saying, hey, when Jesus came into this world, he illuminated this world with his own light. The light of God shined into the world. And people got to see God in flesh. But not everyone believed. Not everyone who had the illumination of who God was accepted Him. And so there's this reality that when you see this word, oftentimes it is speaking of people who have received the light and accepted Jesus, but sometimes it's speaking of people who have not. And so when the author uses this word enlightened, the question is, is he speaking of those who have received the light of God, the light of the gospel, the light of the Holy Spirit, and have accepted it? Or is he speaking of those who have received the light of God, the light of the gospel, the light of the Holy Spirit, and have rejected it? Well, I believe within the context of these verses, and the fact that the author uses his exact same word in this letter to refer to genuine believers that when he speaks of those who are enlightened, he's speaking of those who have received the light and have accepted it. The second description is of those who have tasted 
the heavenly gift. The word translated tasted is used in three of these five descriptions. And so it's a very important word to understand how it is uh, defined. Now, this Greek word can be used in two different ways. First, it can be used probably the way that we would typically use the word taste in our own English language, just to be describe someone tasting the flavor of food. So they're just tasting it to see whether it's good or bad. It's just a little taste. They're not consuming the whole thing. So that's one way that this word could be used. A second way that this Greek word could be used is to describe someone who has fully partaken of something, to experience it to the full. Now, whenever you are doing a study and you come to a word and you want to look it up in its original language in the New Testament, you'd be looking it up in Greek in the Old Testament in Hebrew, and then you come to maybe a, a Strong's Concordance and you read the definition and you realize, well, there, there, there's more than one way this can be defined. And then you kind of ask yourself, well, then what's the definition? You know, how do I know, you know, what the definition is for this particular passage that I'm studying? Like we're here. Well, what kind of taste is it? Is it just a nibble? Or is it to fully consume? And so whenever you have an issue like this where you're not sure, there's some things that are, are good to consider to help you discover what the definition might be. But the first thing is the context. You always want to look at the context in which the word is being used, the verses before, the verses after. You know What would make the most sense which it, within the context? And the second important thing is to look at how the author has used that same word in the rest of the letter, especially the first time he's used that same word. Because typically when an author uses a word, the first time they use it, they're consistent throughout the rest of the letter to use it the same way. That they don't use it one way here, and then another way different here, and then another way different there. That they're usually consistent, and so you want to say, how did he use it first? And that would usually shine light on probably how he's using it when you're seeing it after that. Now, besides the three times the author uses this Greek word here in verses 4 and 5, there's only one other time he uses it in this letter to the Hebrews, and that was back in chapter 2, verse 9. And I want to remind you how the author uses it in 2.9. It says this, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death. For everyone. Now, when the author says that Jesus might taste death, I think you can recognize he's not using taste and just he had a little nibble. You know, he just kind of tasted it. It didn't taste so good. He spit it back out. When he's talking about taste here and using that word, he's speaking of someone who has fully consumed, who has partaken of completely. Because that's what Jesus did with death. He fully took it on. He died in our place, died for you and for me. And so since the first time the author uses this word, and it's the only other time that we see him using this word, and he's speaking of it in this way of to fully partake of, I think that's the way that it's the most likely he's using it here in chapter 6 as well, to describe someone who has fully partaken of and experienced it to the full. And I, and I spent time really helping you see that because there are those who come to this passage and they look at this word taste and they say, well, this is not referring to fully partaking or consuming to the full. This is just, you know, they're taking a nibble and then they reject it. You know, they, they're tasting it and they don't like what they taste and they walk away 
from it. But, but I disagree with that because of the context and because of the way in which the author first mentioned this word and how it was used. Well, now let's get to what these people are, what we're being told they have tasted. They have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, this is one of those things, once again, you come to the question, well, well, what is the heavenly gift? I mean, that could be describing multiple things in Scripture. And there are three main things that we see in the Bible that are likely that the author is referring to here when he speaks of a heavenly gift. The first is salvation. Salvation is a gift from God. The Bible says, for by grace you have been saved. It is the gift of God, not of works that anyone should boast. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So one of the things that we clearly see in Scripture of this heavenly gift could be referring to salvation. The second thing we see the Bible speaking about with heavenly gift is the Holy Spirit. Throughout the book of Acts, as people come to a place where they accept Jesus Christ, we're told that the gift of the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower them is given to them. And the third thing that we see described as a heavenly gift is Jesus himself. The most famous passage or the most quoted passage and memorized passage for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, speaking of Jesus, the great gift of God to us. Now, I think it's important that all three of these heavenly gifts are connected with salvation because you don't receive the gift of Jesus or the gift of the Holy Spirit unless you are truly saved and have put your trust in Jesus, and they all kind of come together. And so this is one of those where most commentators, even though they're not sure if it's speaking of the Holy Spirit or Jesus or salvation, would all agree, well, it's at least speaking most likely of something that's associated with salvation. And so the third description is of those who have become partakers, uh, or uh, sorry, uh, to the second description of those who have tasted and fully partaken of the heavenly gift, which is most likely salvation. So the third description is of those who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now the Greek word here translated partake means to share in or partner with. It describes a person who is an active participant with someone. Now the first two times that the author uses this same Greek word in the letter to the Hebrews is in chapter 3, and both of those times he is describing the recipients of this letter. The first time he describes them as holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. And the second time he says, we have become partakers of Christ. So the first two times this Greek word is uh, translated partakers, it's describing these Jewish believers partaking of the heavenly calling and of Jesus. And now in chapter 6, he says, they have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They are sharing in and partnering with the Holy Spirit. And I personally think it's difficult to make a case that this is speaking of an unbeliever partaking, sharing in, participating with the Holy Spirit. And what people will make the claim is, as well, part of the, the function of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. And so they partake in, but haven't taken uh, whatever that means, uh, of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They, they, they have that on them, but they actually haven't taken it upon them. Uh, and I don't really think that's a great argument. I think it's much more likely that this is speaking of someone who truly partakes uh, because they are filled with uh, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. The fourth description the author gives is of those who have tasted the good word 
of God. So once again, we have this Greek word translated tasted, and for the reasons that I've already given, uh, I believe that it's speaking of someone who has fully partaken of the good word of God, has experienced the word of God to the full. And I don't think it's someone who's just tasted it and spit it out because they didn't like what they tasted. The fifth description the author gives is of those who have tasted the powers of the age to come. So once again, we have this word tasted, but what are they tasting? They're tasting the powers of the age to come. Now, this is a way to describe God's supernatural power. You see, the age to come can really refer to two things. We're referring to heaven of when we go there, or it could be specifically the age of the millennial reign of Christ. But with either one of those, God's supernatural power is going to be very evident as Christ rules and reigns in the millennial reign and rules and reigns in heaven. Uh, and so this is speaking about God's supernatural power. And these people have experienced that and partaken of that to the full. And one of the greatest miracles that God does is to save us from our sin. Now, when you read through the description of these five things, I think if you didn't come to this verse with any preconceived ideas of what it meant, if you didn't come to this verse with any uh, theological systems that you would say this verse has to fit into, if you just read this description all by itself with nothing before it, I think most people would read this and say, you know, this definitely seems to be referring to people who are genuine believers, people who are experienced spiritual enlightenment. They tasted the heavenly gift. They're partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God. They tasted God's supernatural power. Yeah, I definitely, as I come to this, that seems to be what it's speaking. Like, hey, that's a genuine believer. You know, if I was going to put someone in leadership in church, be like, hey, that would be a good list to have. If someone has all those qualities, I would be uh, feeling a lot better with them. And, you know, it, it gives me even greater confidence in this when you also look at the context and the way in which the author has used these words, partakers and taste uh, and enlightened in the rest of Hebrews, which all are definitely speaking about genuine believers. David Guzik wrote this. From a human perspective, it's doubtful that anyone who seemed to have the credentials mentioned in Hebrews 6, 4, and 5 would not be regarded as a true Christian. God knows their ultimate destiny, and hopefully the individual does also. Yet from all outward appearance, such Christian experience might qualify a man to be an elder in many churches, yet beyond the knowledge hidden in the mind of God and the individual in question, from all human observation, we must say these are Christians spoken of in Hebrews 6, 4, and 5. Now, I agree with David Gusick that when you read through this list, you, you look at this list from all human observation. He's saying, yeah, there's obviously, you know, we can go down the road in which the, you know, uh, opponents of this will say, well, God knows the heart. Well, yeah, he does. And there's a possibility that, you know, there are people who believe there's something that they're not. But when we just look at the list from our human observation, it definitely seems to be, this is speaking of genuine Christians. Now, as you can uh, understand, as I mentioned, there are a lot of Bible scholars and their commentators and their pastors and their Christians who would disagree with my conclusion that this is speaking of genuine believers. And that's really part of where the controversy surrounding this passage lies. Whether or not this list of five things is describing a genuine believer or is it describing 
an unbeliever. Now, right now, you might be thinking, well, who cares? I mean, uh, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is we haven't got to the point of what's impossible. That's when it gets tricky. That's when it gets difficult. That's when the controversy really comes. So remember, something's impossible for this group. And as we look at what's impossible, you'll probably understand why some people don't want to accept that this is believers and other people do. So let's read verses 4 through 6 again, and we're going to highlight verse 6, which is really the impossibility that the author is bringing. For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. It is impossible for this group that's described in these five ways, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Now remember what the word impossible means. He's not saying it's real difficult. It's improbable. No, this is something that cannot be done. It's impossible, cannot be done for this group described here if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. Now, I think there's four very important words that we need to define if we're going to understand what the author is saying. And the first two words are fall away. And I really want you to understand this because I think a lot of people have taken, you know, a discouragement from this passage because they miss what this is meaning. There's a big difference between falling as a believer and falling away. And we need to highlight that difference because it's very essential. Every day, each one of us falls as believers, as in we all sin, which is what the Bible speaks of when we're talking about falling into sin. But Proverbs 24, 16 tells us, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. You can be a righteous, genuine believer of Jesus Christ and fall into sin. I mean, that's the reality. None of us are perfect. None of us will be perfect. We're all going to fall. And that is not what the author is talking about of sin that believers fall into. There's a definite difference between falling and falling away. This word falling away speaks of willfully departing from Jesus himself. The third word important to note is Renew. The Greek word translated renew means to restore, to make new. And the fourth important word we need to define is repentance, which means to turn away, to change direction, to have a change of mind and action. So notice what the author is saying. It's impossible. It cannot be done. It's without possibility if this group that he has described falls away, if they willfully depart from Jesus, it's impossible to renew them, to restore them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Now that's quite a warning. You read through a passage like this and you come to this, hopefully it just makes you stop for a moment and think like, what did I just read? What did he just say? Did I read that correct? Is he really saying maybe what I think he's saying? It's impossible for those who fall away to renew them again to repentance. 
Now, the impossibility that the author speaks of here is what has caused the controversy, the debates, the disagreements, like, because they want to know what is it that the author is saying here. Part of the controversy is whether or not the author is describing someone who's a believer versus someone who's an unbeliever. And then the second part of the controversy is what the author means when he says it's impossible for those who fall away to renew them again to repentance. Now, there are basically four main views with four different interpretations of what the author means when the majority of people come to this passage. The the, the first view, which Arminians hold to, is that the description that the author gives is speaking of genuine believers and that when he speaks about what he does, they believe that the genuine believer can lose their salvation if they fall away from Jesus. Now, understand the Arminians' system of theology is one in which they believe genuine Christians can lose their salvation because they believe we have a free will to choose Jesus and we have a free will to reject Jesus even after we've already chosen him. So it fits within their system of theology. Now, there are two other groups who look at this description and they think it's definitely speaking of genuine believers like the Arminian view, but they do not believe that genuine believers can lose their salvation, and so they have a different interpretation as to what the author is saying. The first group interprets the verses by claiming that the penalty that the author is speaking of is losing heavenly rewards, not losing salvation. And they stress the idea that it says repentance is impossible, not salvation is impossible. And so they kind of go down this road that, hey, you know what? He's just talking about heavenly rewards, and he's not talking about salvation. And so they're genuine believers, and they're just going to miss out on rewards in heaven. The second group interprets this by saying this is merely a hypothetical warning, that the author never really intended to say that his readers were really in danger of losing their salvation. It was just a, a hypothetical danger to motivate them to do what he was encouraging them to do. Now, I think that this is the weakest explanation of all because you really can't have a true warning if what you're warning about can't actually happen. So I think this is kind of just a weak way of getting around what, you know, because they come with their system of theology. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. And so therefore, I'll just throw out this. Maybe this is what it's talking about. It's just hypothetical. uh, And I don't think that's a good way to approach scripture at all. So the first three groups all believe that the author is describing genuine believers, but they differ on the interpretation of what the author is meaning when he speaks about the fact that if they fall away, they can't receive repentance. Now, there's a fourth vein view as well, and this is the one that Calvinists hold to. They believe that this description that the author is speaking of is of false believers, or they some would say an unbeliever, a person who believes perhaps that they are a believer, but they're actually not. Uh, and so they were never saved, and so they're not losing their salvation because they never had it. And so they have to come to these words that I listed before because as you read that, there's no way you could take that list and say that's an unbeliever without saying, well, enlightened and tasted uh, and partakers you know, well, this is not speaking of a genuine believer. They just saw the light, but rejected it. They just kind of tasted the heavenly gift, the good word of God, the supernatural power of God, and they didn't like the taste, and they spit it out. And they only shared in the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but not actually shared in the Holy Spirit 
himself. Now, in the Calvinistic system of theology, they do not believe that a genuine believer can lose their salvation. So when they come to this, that's the only conclusion they have. If they start with their system of theology, this cannot be speaking of a genuine believer because they say, well, a genuine believer can't lose their salvation because we don't choose God. God chooses and elects us. You know, that's the system of theology that they have. So those are four of the main views of this passage. But here's the thing that I find interesting with all four of these views, that none of them answers the most perplexing problem here. A lot of people think, well, the most perplexing problem is whether or not a believer can lose their salvation. That's not the most perplexing problem here at all. Yeah, I get that that's an issue. I get that that's a problem. But there's something that I think is even far greater and problematic as you read this. The most perplexing thing is, is there something a believer, if you're thinking of the Arminianist view, or an unbeliever, if you're thinking of the Calvinist view, could do that would make it impossible for them to receive repentance? Think about that. That's much more of a problem than just can a believer lose their salvation. Can a believer walk away from Jesus and never be able to come back even if they wanted to? Or could an unbeliever do something that it was impossible for them to receive repentance? Because that's what this is talking about. And so there's the huge problem that seems to everyone to ignore because they're focusing on whether or not you can lose your salvation. But it's like, well, wait a second. What part of your... uh conclusions and the way in which you interpret it deal with this issue, and actually none of them do. Calvinists believe that this is speaking of an unbeliever, and if you agree with that, then it seems to be saying there is something an unbeliever can do that would make it impossible to receive salvation and repentance. And that's a huge problem because that contradicts the Bible. (laughs) I mean, that's a real big issue if you believe, you know what, yeah, there's some things you can do and God's never going to forgive you, sorry. The Arminians believe that they're speaking about believers who can lose their salvation. So if you agree with that, it seems to be speaking to the fact that there's nothing a believer who has lost their salvation that they can do to get it back. Even if they want to. Oh, I made a big mistake. I can't believe I walked away from Jesus. I want to come back to him. Sorry. You had your chance before. You left it. You're done. You're going to burn. There's no way coming back. Both those views have some big problems much bigger than whether or not a believer can lose their salvation, whether or not a believer can ever get it back or an unbeliever can ever receive it. That's a far more complicated and problematic issue that none of these things actually address. Just claiming a believer losing their salvation or an unbeliever who is never saved, it doesn't deal with this big problem. It doesn't answer the question, why is it impossible for the believer who lost their salvation to ever get it back? And why is it impossible for an unbeliever to never receive repentance. Now, I believe if you just stick with the context of what these verses have been saying before, and you look at the verses after, and you don't interpret everything through your system of theology, I think there's a much better view than the four views that I have posed to you, and one that answers the big problem that we see here. Why is it impossible to be renewed again to repentance? And so let's remind ourselves of the context, who the author is speaking to. He is speaking to believers, genuine ones, who have come out of Judaism. He has just warned them of the temptation they have, which is to leave Jesus, the distinctiveness of Christianity, Jesus and the cross, to go back to portions of Judaism that are the inoffensive middle ground so they can no longer be persecuted. 
And the only way to do that is to walk away from Jesus. And he goes straight in to why it's so important they don't do that. And that's what these verses are. Don't do this. Here's why. And notice he doesn't stop focusing on the specific people of these Jewish believers and their specific problem of going back to Judaism to say, you know what, hold on guys, I'm just going to make some general statement about all believers and whether or not they can lose their salvation, and then we'll get back to you know this warning that I've been talking about here. No, he's following with the same group and the same problem, and he's just giving a warning specifically about the problem that he just said in verse 3 as he comes now to verse 4. And the reason why it's important that they don't do this, that they don't go back to Judaism and abandon Jesus, because it's impossible for people like the author is writing to, who were once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age of, uh, to come, if people like them fall away, if they willfully depart Jesus, which is what they were being tempted to do in order to go back to Judaism, to go back to that inoffensive middle ground, if they do that, then it is impossible to renew and restore them again to repentance. So understand this, the specific problem the author is addressing is you guys are considering leaving Jesus, the cross, the only way to truly receive repentance, which is with the belief in the cross of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for our sin, and you're considering going back to Judaism, back to ultimately the sacrificial system, going back to trying to find repentance through the killing of animals instead of looking to the death of Jesus on the cross. And the author is saying, if you do that, if you abandon the cross and what Jesus did to go back to the sacrificial system and the, the killing of animals to try to find your repentance, you crucify again for Jesus yourself and put him to open shame. You're claiming, hey, I don't need what Jesus did for me on the cross. I can get everything I need through the animal sacrifices in the temple. I can go back to these things in Judaism and I can receive the same kind of repentance that I would with Jesus. And so, you know what? I'm going to leave Jesus and the persecution that goes with it and I'm going to go back to these other things and I'm just going to receive the same stuff there. Well, in the context, what the author is saying is, hey, you retreat back to Judaism and the sacrificial system, all the repentance in the world under that sacrificial system will do you absolutely no good. And the reason it will do you no good is because the only place that repentance is given is through Jesus at the cross. You see, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross put an end to the need for the sacrificial system. Once he died, that was no longer needed again. He's dead. The lamb has been crucified once for all. There's no more need for the sacrificial system. It's been completely done away with because the ultimate sacrifice that the sacrificial system was pointing to year after year after year has finally come and it has been done and it's complete. As Jesus says, it's finished. Not, well, it's finished for this year and you better go back to the sacrificial system next year. No, it's done. It's complete. He did it all. And so what the author is saying, if you seek repentance through going back to Judaism and the sacrificial system, it will be impossible to renew you again to repentance. And the reason it's impossible is not because they are doing a sin that is so great that God couldn't forgive. 
That's not what he's saying at all. It's because they are seeking repentance somewhere other than Jesus and the cross. And since God only gives repentance through Jesus and the cross, it's impossible to receive it anywhere else. If you go to the sacrificial system, or you go to some other religion, or you go through your works, or whatever it is that people are looking to to receive repentance, the author would say, it's impossible for you to receive it as you seek it elsewhere, somewhere besides Jesus Christ. David Guzik wrote this, The idea is not that if you fall away, you, can, you can't ever come back to Jesus. Instead, the idea is, if you turn your back on Jesus, don't expect to find salvation anywhere else, especially in the practice of religion apart from the fullness of Jesus. So the author is saying, if you leave Jesus, if you go back to Judaism, hey, don't expect to find salvation. Don't expect to find repentance back in Judaism because you're not going to. It's now only found in Jesus and the cross. Now within the context, the author is just giving the believers there another reason why they shouldn't depart from Jesus. I mean, we've seen this over and over from the beginning of the letter to now of reason after reason. He knows their issue. You're thinking of departing from Jesus. Well, let me tell you how much greater Jesus is than the prophets, than the angels, than Moses, than Joshua, than Aaron, than any of the high priests. And you guys, here's another reason why you shouldn't depart from Jesus, because it's only through Him that you can receive repentance. It's impossible to receive repentance anywhere else, and so you'd be a complete fool for departing from the only one that can give you the repentance you so desperately need. And I believe that this is the simplest and the clearest way to look at this passage, and I believe it's the one that best answers the big problem of why it would be impossible for someone to be renewed back to repentance. It has nothing to do with a sin that they commit that's so great. It has to do with the fact that they're not looking for it in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that fits completely well with what the Bible said. There's no contradiction. When you look at the gospel message, that's what we claim. Hey, there's salvation in only Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. You can't find it anywhere else. The contradiction would be to claim that you could get it some other way. And so this fits well with the Word of God, and it shows us what the author is dealing with here, not the fact that, hey, you could do something so great that you would never be able to receive repentance. No, if you don't come to Jesus, you can never receive repentance. And that's true for anyone. That's the only place you find it. But guess what? Let's say these believers did what the author is wanting them not to do. Let's say they go back to Judaism. Let's say they start trying to you know, go through the sacrificial system to find repentance, and they realize this isn't working. This isn't doing it. You know, The author's not saying, sorry, guys. You can never come back now. You made your bed. Now you got to lie in it. You're stuck. You're never going to get uh, repentance again. No. If they were to see the error of their ways and they were to come back to Jesus... And they say, Jesus, we're no longer looking to the sacrificial system in Judaism for our repentance, for our salvation. We want to look back to you. Guess what Jesus would do with open arms? Say, God bless you. I receive you again. I give you my uh, forgiveness. I accept your repentance. Why? Because they've gone from not looking to it in Jesus to coming back to Jesus. And they would receive it if they did. So these verses are not saying you can do something that will never cause you to receive repentance. They're saying if you leave Jesus to find repentance in something else, you're never going to find it. Because it's only found in Jesus. And I would say the main application to these little verses is not, you know, can a believer lose their salvation or not? I don't really think that's the main point the author's trying to make at all. 
stay with Jesus. Don't leave him. Just like I've been saying, don't leave him. He's greater than all the prophets. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than Joshua. Hey, you know what? Also, there's no repentance without him. You go back to that stuff you're thinking about, thinking, I can do life back like I used to. No, you cannot lose the source of everything, which is Jesus, and think you're going to be okay. Don't go. Don't leave. And I think this is another great encouragement for us as we've already seen all these reasons why we should never depart from Jesus. Here's another one. If you're thinking, man, you know, and as I mentioned last week, I believe that we will see more persecution in our country towards Christianity. And there's going to be that temptation of, hey, you know, maybe the the safe middle ground that's inoffensive is far better. I don't get mocked. I don't have people, you know, coming against me. I don't have these different issues anymore. But you know what? You walk away from Jesus. You walk away from things that are far too great to leave. And so that's the challenge here of never leave him. He has all you need, and he's the only one who can meet your greatest needs. So don't leave him. Let's pray.